It's the Ford Show. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Ford Show. I'm your host, Jason Ford. And today, something special. I have one of the stars from the 1946 movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, even though the movie is nearly 75 years old, its message couldn't be more relevant given everything that's happened this year. So, we need a little bit of inspiration, and this movie delivers in spades. In fact, in 2006, it was ranked as the number one inspirational movie of all time by the American Film Institute. It's the story of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, who on Christmas Eve contemplates committing suicide after his Uncle Billy misplaced an $8,000 deposit. With a bank examiner reviewing the company's records, George realises that criminal charges will follow. His friends and family pray to God to look over and protect George. Hearing the prayers, a guardian angel called Clarence appears and proceeds to show George what life would be like if George had never lived, after he wished he was never born. If Clarence can help George, then he'll earn his wings. Along the way, Clarence shows George that if he never lived, his 12-year-old brother Harry, he saved as a kid, would have died. He doesn't become the war hero and the soldiers he would have saved also perish. The druggist, Mr Gover, is charged with murder after a young George wasn't there to prevent him from accidentally putting poison pills in the prescription. Realising that Clarence is his guardian angel, George Bailey asks to have his life back as the town raises the missing $8,000. Now, one of the most famous scenes is the final scene, when Zuzu Bailey utters... Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Well, Zuzu Bailey was played by Carolyn Grimes, who, as a child, starred in 16 movies, playing alongside the likes of Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby, Angela Lansbury, Betty Grable, Gary Cooper, Cary Grant, John Wayne and Danny Kaye, just to name a few. Well, that little girl is not so little now. She's 80 years old, and along the way she's had her fair share of trials and tribulations, but the movie It's a Wonderful Life has a special place in her heart, and nothing gives her more joy than sharing that with the millions of adoring fans over many decades. And it's a great pleasure to have Carolyn Grimes on the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. I I love Australia. I've been there, and I I found your bats extremely exciting. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes, but you know, it's different and it's beautiful and such wonderful wildlife. I, you know, it's exciting there. It, it's a beautiful place. It's it's quite incredible that a film that's nearly 75 years old is just as much maybe even more meaning than it did back in 1946. Well, it it's more meaning because when the movie came out, it was not a success. You know, it was a box office failure. And it sat on a shelf for 20 years, and then they didn't renew the copyright. So in the early 70s, they started showing the movie on television because it was free. So every little station played it across America, and that's how it started getting its exposure. Why was that? Why, why wasn't it, do you think it wasn't a success when it first came out? Well, I actually think that there are many reasons. One of them is that it was right after World War II, and people were wanting to be entertained. They wanted to laugh. They they really didn't want to sit and watch a dark movie. And It's Wonderful Life is really kind of a dark movie, and it was marketed incorrectly. It was marketed as a romantic comedy. 
And I don't think that it really qualifies for that kind of lightness. It's more of a heavy movie. So those are two definite things that were against it. And then the studio, head of the studio came to Capra and he said, we're supposed to have Sinbad the Sailor be our Christmas movie and it's not going to be ready. So we want you to hurry up and get your film ready to release for the Christmas release for this year. Well, he did all that he was supposed to do, but it wasn't released until December the 20th at the Globe Theater in New York. Well, that's a little too late for a Christmas movie to get, you know, legs anyway. And it was never supposed to be released until March of 1947. So all in all, there were so many strikes against it, it really didn't have a chance to to be a winner at that time. So it's quite interesting. I recently did an interview regarding the 40th anniversary of the movie Caddyshack. And like when that first came out, the critics were lukewarm over the release. But over time, it's become a, a cult classic. Well, that's true. And the, the other thing, when it came out, they, they had a, a way of qualifying Frank Capra's movie, movies as Capricorn. So they thought the movie was, you know, another Capricorn corny movie. And in the film, Capra knew that they made fun of his films, the critics, and called it Capricorn. So in the in the movie where um, Virginia Patton Moss, who's Harry Bailey's wife, gets off the train and George and Uncle Billy meet her, she walks over with Uncle Billy and she walks right straight to a popcorn machine and starts eating popcorn with her gloves on. And the name of the little popcorn machine there was the best popcorn in town. Throughout the movie, there are many, many messages that Frank Capra put in there. As I mentioned at the start, the film's nearly 75 years old, and given 2020 and everything that's gone on, um, it's probably got even more meaning this year. In essence, what is the meaning of the film to you? Well, I think it's all about how we can make each other's lives better, how we can see how George went through life and he made a difference. And he, he sacrificed a lot for, for his fellow man. At least he thought he did. But in, in the end, he got to sit down and really see what was important to him. And those kind of family values and the things that are important to us today. So it kind of reinforces what we are doing and who we are. And it also reinforces the fact that we can make a difference and that each one of us matters and we all make a difference. I see. I think that's the whole message from the movie. There's so many. Because having rewatched it for this interview, the one big takeout was a sense of community. You know, when there's the run on the bank, George Bailey tries to tell people wanting to withdraw their money that they're basically invested in other people in their community through the loans to build their houses. And at the end of the movie, the, the community comes together to raise the missing $8,000, uh, I mean, especially in 2020 this year, I mean, the phrase that, you know, politicians have used during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in Australia, is that we're all in this together. That's true. You, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. I, the, the money's not here. 
Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? The story behind the actual movie is, is quite an interesting one because it's based on a Christmas card from what I read. By Philip Van Dornstern. It was a Christmas card and it was about a, a brush salesman and how he wanted to take his own life and, and then he discovered that life was not bad after all. It was a short little thing, and um, Philip Van Dornstern shopped it around and uh, because he had given it out as a Christmas card, but then he decided to shop it around and see if he could do something with it. And, and finally, it ended up in Frank Capra's hands. He liked the story, and so he hired a couple of screenwriters, and they did their versions of what they thought the story should be and then he took their versions and the little Christmas card and he holed himself up in his Castida in La Quinta California and he wrote what he thought the story should be and that was he combined all that the ideas from other people plus his own and he made the movie what it was. Because I understand too that one of the people that received that Christmas card, it was actually sent to Cary Grant who was considered for the role. Yes, he was considered for the role. <laughs> I, I don't think he would have been as good. It, 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 I think that, um, you know, I worked with him too and he was really quite wonderful in The Bishop's Wife. And uh, I, I, David Nevin and Loretta Young and he he actually was my favorite star to work with over the years. But um, I think Jimmy Stewart was by far the person who would best portray George Bailey. I don't think there will ever be a remake because they cannot replace him because he really made the movie. He was the movie. Another little interesting thing that I read when the, the movie came out as well is that the, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover considered the movie communist propaganda. The report claimed that the movie deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters. Yes, socialistic and all that. Um, Frank Capra was under their... Uh, scrutiny for quite some time over it but you know he 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 had a studio and he lost everything because the movie was a bust and the studio went under liberty films and their logo was the liberty bell and i was born on the fourth of july i thought that was kind of a coincidence but um he lost his studio they only made one film that was it and he lost 500-some thousand dollars right at the get-go. Um, so, you know, he, he didn't really benefit from it. And then the, then they came and scrutinized him. And <laughs> I can't imagine how he felt at that time. As you said, he went into bankruptcy and lost his business. But also the movie sort of became lost and then rediscovered a few decades later. Where did the renaissance of It's a Wonderful Life uh, come from? Well, it was, um, the copyright was not renewed. 
And so the movie became public domain. That meant that each television station across the country, everywhere, could play that movie, and it didn't cost anything. So it was on one channel after another channel. It was on five channels at one time. It was it, it, the people just got super exposed to this wonderful film because it was free for them to show it, and that is how it got its beginnings. And and then I'm old enough to remember. The people that watched it back then, they began to do it as a tradition every year. They had their children watch it with them. And through the generations, I have seen how every generation still continues. Their kids watch it, and then their next generation, their kids watch it, and it just gets bigger and bigger and more popular because of its exposure. It's just, And that's how it started in the early 70s. And from your perspective, around this time that people started to get in touch with you because you hadn't seen the film in a few decades yourself. Well, no, I didn't see it. Um, I, di- I didn't even think about it because I had never seen it. Um, I really, in 1980, I lived out in the country and we were on um, a farm and someone came and knocked on my door and they said, were you in this movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Did you play part of Zuzu? And I said, well, yeah. And so they said, well, can we have an interview? So I gave him an interview, and uh, that happened a couple of times. And then I started getting fan mail, and and I thought, what in the world is going on here? I, I guess I better sit down and watch this movie. So I didn't see the movie till I was 40. Wow. Uh, I mean, was there a reason why you didn't see the movie at all up until that point? You know, it was it, it wasn't that accessible to me. I had seven kids, and we we were busy, and I really didn't watch a whole lot of TV. Um, I maybe late TV at ten o'clock at night or something, but I didn't watch a lot of television, and it just wasn't something that my mother always taught me not to be too self-centered, and so. Uh, she thought that, you know, if, if you get too into yourself when you watch yourself perform, that isn't a good thing. So I really grew up not ever really watching any of the movies I was in. And what was the reaction when you saw the film as a 40-year-old? Well, I cried and the tears ran and I realized that this was a masterpiece and that it would touch many lives. And I decided then that I would definitely make every effort to become a part of that because people had asked me to do things and I had resisted because I just didn't, I felt like those were days of the past and I just didn't really embrace it. But after I saw the movie, I decided that I would change that. So I started doing appearances where I lived, I was still raising kids for about 10 years. And then in 1993, the Target Company decided to reunite the Bailey children and send them on a tour around the States. So I was on board with that. And so I went around and at each gig and appearance, we met so many people. They'd line up and tell us how this movie had affected their lives. 
and how they'd share their experiences. I mean, it was so moving to me that I decided that this was something that I wanted to do. So I've been on the road ever since 1993 for the film. So essentially you've become the unofficial ambassador for It's a Wonderful Life. I would say that, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I started a festival 17 years ago in Seneca Falls, New York, which I feel like is the place that Frank Capra got his ideas for the design of Bedford Falls for the film. And um, 17 years ago, it's, it's, it's still going, and this year we're going to have a virtual festival, and I've just been a part of so many things that have become um, annual celebrations of the film. I feel very blessed that I was a part of this film, and I I don't take it lightly. I take it as a responsibility, and I really do make make it part of my life. And what was it like meeting back up or reuniting with the Bailey kids from the movie? Well... <laughs> It was really kind of exciting because I had been out of Hollywood for years. So, you know, it it was really fun to be with them again. And that was, you know, 30 some years ago. And now they're like real brother and sister. I talked to my little brother who burped, little Tommy Bailey, Jimmy Hawkins, almost every day. And um, especially since COVID, we've become closer. And so it's, been quite an experience i i now have a family that i didn't have before and i guess to people rediscovering it and you rediscovering the movie and being out on the road that you're also able to reconnect at the time with jimmy stewart i believe that he tracked you down yes he did track me down (laughs) he had a secret a lot of people came to him and said you know whatever happened to that little girl in the movie zuzu and he had a secretary track me down and she found me. And so we did reunite and we had a few years, not very long before he wasn't able to travel or do anything anymore, but it was really a blessed thing to happen to me. I feel blessed that I was that little girl in the movie. It's, it's just, just been an honor. And what was he like? I noticed in um, a previous interview you told a really nice story of Jimmy Stewart doing things for his fans that wasn't widely publicised. It's true. He he really took personal interest in a lot of his fans. And he was generous, kind. Um, he would donate to various events and he didn't have to have any credit for it. He didn't want people to know. And he supported many charities. I mean, he gave of himself, just like George Bailey did. So I I felt like he was kind of a George Bailey in a lot of ways. And people coming up to you and talking about the impact that the movie had on them, what were some of their stories? Well, a lot of them tell me they've been on the bridge. And they saw the movie. And it gave them a reason to live again. That's the main thing that really strikes me as important because a lot of people actually, when they're depressed and down, they sit down and watch the movie. Many people watch it all all year round just to get uplifted and to, to feel that 
sense of hope that the movie gives you. They they tell me so many wonderful stories of how their lives have changed because they watched that movie. There's and and it's affected people's lives. Like I I had one man tell me that his wife had terminal cancer in the last 15 days of their life because her favorite movie was It's a Wonderful Life. They watched the movie every day. And then uh, during her memorial service, they he had bought a bunch of little bells and they rang bells at the end of her service. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> that that bell ringing and the angels is it's so important to people. And I, I think that it's... Um, it gives people a sense of closure and a sense of hope. How did you get the part of Zuzu Bailey, one of George Bailey kids? Well, I really don't know. I I was there for an interview. It was one-on-one with Mr. Capra. He handpicked everyone in the film, even the extras. He handpicked them. It was a very, very... Um, personal thing for him and he was he was just a genius at picking people and there were five little girls I remember there in the office at the same time I was and we all went in to see the Frank Capra one-on-one each time and so one of the mothers spilled some coffee on my dress and that I, it didn't bother me at all. You know, I went in there to see Frank Capra with a dirty dress on, and I talked and talked. And I didn't bother me one bit. Maybe that made a difference. I don't know. And I didn't know she really did it on purpose. But I heard my mother talking to another mother after when we were leaving, and she thought that the lady had done it on purpose. But apparently, he liked me, and I got the part. And what are your memories of the, the set and shooting the actual film? Well, um, I'd already done four movies, and um, so it wasn't anything unusual. And we were there on the set. The kids were there for a week. And we um, had a teacher there to, from the Health and Welfare Department, so um, it was one that I had met before, so I felt very comfortable on the set. The thing that I think I remember the most was snow, because in Hollywood, it doesn't snow. I'd never seen snow before. Of course, this wasn't real snow, but it was snow to me. And so that was pretty exciting to tromp around in that stuff and get to see that. And I really enjoyed that. Plus, I enjoyed playing with the other kids. And, you know, in movies, nothing is real. So if you went up the stairs to my room, there was nothing there. You open the door and nothing there. I mean, you just drop off because everything was staged and everything wasn't real. My room was on the other side of the stage and totally, you know, a three-room, three-wall structure that wasn't real either. So I, I always found things like that interesting. But going up the stairs like that was really fun. Because I understand, too, there was, it was quite hot during filming that at one stage, director Frank Capra gave everyone a day off to recuperate. It was. They were having a, an exceptionally hot summer, and uh, I think that there was some issues with melting and so forth because there was a lot of crushed ice that was brought about on outside shooting scenes on the 
location. They had a studio ranch, and they did all the outside scenes and the the mock-up of the town on the outside was done at the studio ranch, and a lot of that was melting, and so, yes, he had a problem with that. And and it, we had to wear, they wore winter clothes, so they were really hot, you know, for the most part, you know. Now, you're only six at the time, but you got to work with the giants, uh, such as Jimmy Stewart. What was it like working with these people? I mean, did you have any sense that you're working with giants, or you're just a six-year-old girl just doing a movie? I was just a six-year-old girl doing my job. My mother never shared with me or let me know that these people were stars. I didn't really think anything about it. I felt like they were just my friends. I mean, I had already worked with Bing Crosby and Randolph Scott. I mean, I'd already been working with stars before I even got to this one. So they weren't any different from anybody else. They were just normal people to me. I didn't have a clue. I would go to the commissary and I would say hi to all these stars. <laughs> and, and, you know, they would say, hi, Carolyn, and that was it. And I just looked at them as my friends. I didn't know they were Hollywood royalty by any means. They were just wonderful. They were kind. They were generous. I mean, they were just really sweet people. I did a movie with John Wayne, and we were in Moab, Utah, which is kind of out in the boonies. It's in, We're just in the desert, kind of, and... And the Korean conflict broke out while we were there, so we had trouble getting supplies shipped in. And my birthday is the 4th of July, and we were there, and I turned 10. And John Wayne had $300 worth of fireworks shipped in and a giant cake made, and he took us all out to the Colorado River Bluffs and had a party for little Miss Carol. <laughs> you have a really nice story in relation to, to Bing Crosby when you met him a few years after you did the movie with him. Yeah. Yes, I did. I probably made a fool. But anyway, I saw him on the lot in Paramount. I was on the street. He was on the other side of the street. And I hollered at him and said, hi. And he said, Mary Elizabeth. And that was my name in the movie. And so he said, come over. So I ran over there and and we started talking and I told him I had gotten a new dog last night and I named him Bing because he howled all night long. (laughs) I didn't know but there was a reporter from Variety standing next to him so that little story got in Variety the next day. That's lovely. Now, in the movie, you've got a couple of memorable scenes, the pedal scene and the angel scene right at the end of the movie and probably one of the most famous lines out of the film. Can you tell me about those two scenes? Well, the pedal scene, when you're a little girl, you're always in bed in the movie, seems like I was always in bed. And I, I remember distinctly how gentle and kind Mr. Stewart was. And uh, I made a mistake. I, I fluffed a line, and he said, that, that's okay, Carolyn. You'll get it right next time. And I did. And I will never forget that. I felt like he gave me the confidence to know that it's okay to make a mistake, but, you know, it, it, it'll get better. And it certainly did. So, I mean, I'll never forget that. 
nor will I forget how big his hand was. It was like it covered my whole face. <laughs> but, but, you know, I just loved it. Uh, he was so kind and gentle that it was really special. And then when I when I did the end of the movie scene, it's very interesting because I was on his back. I was holding on to his neck, and my legs were wrapped around him. And on the stairs, when he was seeing Mary for the first time when she came up the stairs, the oldest boy was holding me up. Um, from the back side so that I could remain on his back. And then when he goes down the stairs, he's got little Tommy under one arm, Mary's hand in the other, and I'm just hanging on to his neck and wrapping my feet around his body. <laughs> and we did that a number of times, you know, takes. And um, it was pretty exciting that he was always so gentle and kind, and I just prayed I wouldn't fall off. <laughs> He was a tall man. He was six feet four, and I sure didn't want to fall off him. And is that final scene, that that's the one that sort of gets quoted to you the most? Yes. Yes. The line, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, is one that I think will be there forever. And, um, of course, I'm always embarrassed when I see the scene at the end because I don't know the words to Old Anxine and I'm singing quite loudly. <laughs> I don't think Jimmy Stewart knew him either because he starts laughing at me and doesn't have to sing, of course, when he laughs. But, you know, I was always embarrassed that Frank Capra didn't teach me the lines to that song. And I read too that many years later you got to ring the bells at the New York Stock Exchange. That's true. That was so exciting. <laughs> It was. It was so much fun. I got to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I I was also, um, I got to be involved in uh, the ringing of the Liberty Bell um, for the year 2000. Um, it was a century thing. And um, I was picked, they had someone there from every year with a hundred years and I was picked for 1940 to be there and it was pretty exciting. I guess at the time when you, when you rang it, that line was uttered. Oh yes. Always. <laughs> yes. It's always uttered. I mean, it's, it's, it's a part of the thread of history in the movies. I think that line is. And so I'm very proud to have been able to say that line. And I believe it. I believe there are angels. Now, we were sort of talking before with Cary Grant that he was in line to do the movie, but and, and you said that you don't think that anyone could have pulled it off like Jimmy Stewart. In terms of uh, Jimmy Stewart, I mean, this was his first movie since returning from military service in World War Two, And at the time... I understand that it was hard to get him to commit to the film because he wanted to do a comedy. As he said, the world had seen enough trauma and suffering and the idea of making a film where the, the lead character attempts to, to kill himself wasn't very appealing. Well, that's true. But I I think that Capra, it was Capra's idea. I mean, Jimmy was in a point during his life he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do with his life because the war had changed him a lot. And so he was trying to decide if he even wanted to act again. 
And when Capra brought him that project and said, you want to try it, he just said, well, why not? You know, I mean, it was such a, a far-reaching thought to play a man who, you know, lives and and then goes through reliving of his life and he's no longer alive. And then, I mean, it just, it sounded so hokey when he first um, read about it. But then in the end, he said, why not? You know, and so the two of them, it was uh, Capra's first movie after World War II, too. So they decided they'd try it out. And they did. And of course, it wasn't a success. But in the end, Capra knew what he had created. And so Donna Reed knew before she got her wings. And of course, Jimmy Stewart knew too. So I think it's blessed that they at least got to live long enough that they knew what they created. I read that Lionel Barrymore, who plays the Mr. Scrooge-like character, Mr. Potter in the film, said to Jimmy Stewart, so are you saying it's more worthwhile to drop bombs on people than to entertain them? And that sort of hit Stewart, and that helped to turn him around and made him think, okay, I do have an important role and there are things to be done. So in the end, he did it, and the rest is history, I guess. That's right. There are some great lines in that movie. And to be perfectly honest, I think Clarence, the guardian angel, is the the one with the great lines. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? The other one, when he wrote in the, the Tom Sawyer book, Remember, George, no man is a failure who has friends. I mean, there's some lovely lines and, and, and sentiment in that film. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's all Capra. He created all of that. He just was a genius. He really was. He did every time a bell rings, you know, I mean, all of that. It's um, it's pretty remarkable. And what are your favorite scenes from the movie? I mean, having watched the film now, well, I, I don't know, how many times have you watched the film? <laughs> oh, probably 300 or more. <laughs> Well, you'll be able to answer the question then. Uh, what are your favorite scenes from the movie? What what stands out for you? Well, I really only have one favorite scene because there are so many scenes that I love. I love the scene where he's in the bar and he's praying. And um, I just think that that's a marvelous scene. He just acts, I mean, he really felt like he was, George, but I'm, I love that scene. But my favorite scene is the scene where he's on the bridge and he wants to live again. And he says, please, God, please, God. But first he says, please, I want to live again. I want to live again. And then the minute he says the word God, it starts to snow. And you know he's back. And and for me, he's discovered what really is important in life, and that's faith and family and friends. I think it's that, to me, speaks more than any other scene in the whole film. Clarence! Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again. Please, God, 
Let me live again. I've heard you say in the past too that it's a wonderful life. It's obviously got a Christmas feel to it. It's sort of played around the Thanksgiving, Christmas time of year, but you don't see it as a, a Christmas movie as such. I don't think I ever meant for you to. It was supposed to just be an inspirational movie, a feel-good movie. Um, it just so happens that it all takes place on Christmas Eve. <laughs> The entire film takes place on one day. How did you get into acting? Well, I was born and raised in Hollywood, and that was the thing kids did back then. I mean, everybody was usually involved in the business in some way, and so my mother, I was an only child, and she was a stage mother, and so she had me take a myriad of classes, dancing and singing and elocution dialect, drama, everything. Then she trotted me out to see an agent. The agent liked me. And at the time, her name was Lola Moore. At that time, she handled most of the children in Hollywood. So she put me in her stable and um, I got some parts and that was all it took. So all my mother's hard work paid off. All your hard work paid off as well. You got to star in some wonderful movies along with some uh, amazing actors and actresses. You mentioned a few there, but I mean, Fred Astaire, Angela Lansbury, Betty Grable, Gary Cooper, Glenn Ford, Danny Kaye. This was the the cream of Hollywood. Brad McMurray. (laughs) Yes. And is acting something that you wanted to do? Well, no, I was four years old. I didn't really know any different. I, I didn't know life, any other kind of life. It was just what I was introduced to and did it. And then um, I only did it for a short time, really, so it wasn't that big a deal. Had I remained in Hollywood, I might have had a different kind of life. I don't know, but I think that my divine path was to get out of Hollywood so I could, a few years later, be this little girl called Zuzu from It's a Wonderful Life. Not sure that would have happened if I still lived in Hollywood. I think you ended up doing around 16 films. What made you stop in the end? Well, when I was eight years old, my mother started getting sick. And she was eventually so sick that she couldn't really take me anywhere or do um any stage mothering for me at all. And you need a stage mom to push you out there and keep you going because otherwise you want to just be a normal kid. And my father was working plus paying for a caregiver for her. And if if I was to go for an interview or get a part, he'd have to pay for a guardian to accompany me for all those things. So he wasn't pushing me either. And so it, my movie life sort of dwindled And um, then she died when I was 14, and my father was killed when I was 15 in an automobile accident. And the court in Hollywood shipped me to a little town in Middle America, and that was what happened to me, a very little town. (laughs) There were 800 people in the town (laughs) from Hollywood to there. And so at that point, was acting something that you still wanted to do or was that you were just entering a new phase of your life? I was just answering a new phase of my life. I lost my parents. I lost my home, my friends, my school. I lost my life, literally. And 
I was surviving that. I didn't care whether I worked in the movies or not. We're sort of talking about before how people come up to you and talk about how It's a Wonderful Life has helped them, the fact that they've had trials and tribulations in, in their own lives. But, uh, I mean, you've, it, it's, been, it's been a hard road for you as well. Oh, yes, it has. Um, but I, I think I've been given extra strength just so I could survive all this. Good grief. <laughs> I'm, I'm very fortunate because Zuzu has been a wonderful balance for all the other things in my life. What is your message to everyone out there this Christmas? Keep hope in your heart because this too will end. <laughs> And, you know, um, there's a reason for everything. Maybe someday we'll find out what this reason is. But for now, we have to keep hope in our heart and, and to give of ourselves to other people. It's so important. We've lost, um, kind of forgotten that, I think. People are self-centered and it's kind of different now. But... We need to go back to those times, simpler times, when we cared about each other. And I think that will make a huge difference in our healing, which we will we will come out of this. There's no doubt about it. This, this, we will survive this curse. And I think when we do, we'll be a better place. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Atta boy, Claire. Caroline or Zuzu, it's been an absolute pleasure and, and honour to speak to you about the movie It's a Wonderful Life and uh, you know a little bit about your life as well. I think where we're at, you know, we do need a little bit of hope to get through this next phase and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Well, thank you for having me. inspiring was that and it was such a great pleasure to have carolyn on the show and i hope you enjoyed it well that's it for this edition of the ford show and i hope to speak to you soon take care until the same time next week it's good night from F-O-R-D.